0: Welcome to Deal Closers with Annette Talie, where we focus on the deals. Our guests are real estate closers who will share in detail the whole process from finding a deal to closing it, as well as strategies and tips to help you do the same. Here is your host, Annette Tali.
1: Welcome to another episode of Deal Closers. I am your host, Annette Tali, and my guest today is Sam Newell. Welcome, Sam. Hey, thanks for having me on. I am very excited to have you. So let me tell my listeners a little bit about you. Uh, Sam is a real estate investor, top producing broker, fly fisherman, and a family man. Sam's passion lies in income producing real estate. While studying construction management, Sam successfully started his own real estate flipping and long-term holding company as an investor and licensed Realtor, Sam has bought and sold and participated in over 100 million in real estate transactions over the last nine years. From flipping small houses to developing 35 million uh, fourplex complexes to buying large apartment communities, Sam has a vast experience and expertise and has not only benefited his family and partners, but many loyal investor clients as well. Integrity and expertise are most important to Sam when working with clients and partnerships. Awesome. So tell me, Sam, how did you get into real estate?
0: That's a really good question. So it probably starts back when my dad was going to school. He got his PhD in psychology and, and in order to help pay for school, he would manage and my mom would manage apartments. So we would live in an apartment. And we would offer to, you know, get lower rent. And so from a very early, early age, I saw that happening. I would mow lawns as a young kid. You know, I think there was four, three or four duplexes that where we lived and I had to mow the lawns for all of them. I didn't get paid. We just saved money on rent. And so that was interesting. And (coughs) excuse me, if we fast forward, um, I was going to school for engineering, mechanical engineering. I didn't love that. I switched to construction management, and um, I was doing summer sales. So I would study um, basically from September through April. I'd do my finals, then I'd travel out wherever my company would send me to sell alarm systems, or later on I would sell pest control door to door, and that's how I paid for school. And I ended up being pretty good. I ended up making 40, 50,000 a summer, which was more than enough to pay for school, pay my tuition. I, wow, that's Young. Yeah, it's not bad at Brigham Young, you, you know, tuition's very low. It's like, you know, 2300 a semester. So that's nice. And so in 2010, you know, my buddy and I were talking about flipping. I had just gotten married in, in 2008 and we were tired of renting. And so we bought a house. We bought a disgusting, gross, just vacant house that was just, it was a great house, but it was, it was nasty, you know, it had, had some issues. We paid 170,000 for it. We lived in it. So we house hacked it. If you are in bigger pockets, you know, that's the big thing. We house hacked it. I didn't even know what house hacking was. Um, And I didn't really know what I was going to sell it for. I just knew that in 2007, it had sold for 330,000. I bought it from the bank for 170,000. So I figured I couldn't lose, right? We were in the bottom of the market in 2010. Utah was doing okay, but still, you know, there's a lot of people struggling and and we ended up fixing it, living in it, flipping it and, and selling it for, I think 240, 250,000, I think it was like 247,000. So that, that that's was great.
1: Good. Yeah. A lot
0: of money for college kids.
1: How much did you put in it?
0: Um, you know, I think we only put, since we lived in it, that's the beauty of house hacking is we only put three and a half percent down on our mortgage. So I think we put six or seven grand down. Um, and then as far as money into it, I think I put about 20 grand. I did most of the work myself. I know how to tile. I know how to paint, obviously. And that's not hard. I put heated uh, heated floors in and all the kitchen and all the tile areas. I did that all myself. And um, so when, when you do it yourself, it, it's not super expensive. And um, so, yeah, I think I was maybe maybe a little bit less than 30000 into it.
1: Oh, wow. That's incredible. Yeah. So after that, what happened?
0: Well, uh, we had a baby and, um, you know, my wife's parents were a little bit mad at me for living in a nasty flip. <laughs> <laughs> and then I made them even more mad at me because we moved into an even nastier duplex. <laughs> and uh, but I wanted to be in Lehigh, Utah. That's the Silicon Slopes. All There's this growth happening and I wanted to be close and I knew I wanted to buy multifamily. I was getting more into working with investors. I was a realtor by then, and I got my license after I bought that first flip. and And I just loved investing, so I bought this duplex and did the same thing. We lived in it. We put almost no money down. We actually sold it a year later and made forty five thousand on it. Um, that's pretty good for one year. And yeah. then we bought another house and we house hacked that one. And then we started buying townhomes. And then I started building fourplexes with excuse me with another company that I, I partnered with and we built fourplexes all over Utah, Idaho, and Texas. And, um, you know, I, I owned a few of those and I house hacked again. And, um, and then we lived in one of our townhomes and after we house hacked that, I think that fifth property, my wife said, you know what, financially, we don't need to do this anymore, please. And so I'm actually living in the first house we've ever bought for ourselves. That's not an investment.
1: Oh, awesome. Ten years yeah. later,
0: yeah.
1: I wish I learned about house hacking before I had kids. Because now that I have kids, I don't really yeah. want to move, you know. No. And, you yeah. know, we. I bought my my house after I bought my first investment property. So okay. we first bought something that was cash flowing and then we bought our house. And then, you know, you customize it the way you want it because it was also really outdated. And now I don't want to move. I
0: exactly. love it. <laughs> Yeah. No, it's definitely better when you're young. It, it's hard. Once you have kids, once you have a career, you know, um, my wife, bless her heart, she's so s- smart and patient and she saw the value and we did it with, we did three of them with kids, but that, you know, those last couple were just a little bit too much. So we're done.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I couldn't imagine, uh, you know, moving with kids it's just i've done it once and then i don't want to do it more we probably will do it again but i just don't want to do the house hacking route which is awesome for people that are starting and especially if they are single or just married they can you know really get ahead yeah doing the birth strategy it's a great way to start the deal Okay, so tell me about the deal that we're going to talk about today.
0: Yeah, so, you know, you can see in my background, if you're watching this, um, it says recession proof. So in 2017 and 18, the market was just going nuts. We were appreciating in Utah 10% per year if you for investment properties, wow. which is crazy. Um, which I benefited from, benefited from, so I wasn't complaining, but I started to get nervous. I started feeling like a 2006, 7, 8 was coming Because investors were just throwing money at deals that I felt didn't make sense. And as a realtor, I get paid a lot of money. And and then, you know, I, I didn't want them to say, hey, you know, you sold me this deal and it doesn't work, or the recession came and I'm not making money. So I started really researching and trying to figure out what was a better deal? Where could I put my investors' money and what could I help them buy that was more recession proof? That's where the Recession Proof Podcasts idea started. It just launched by the way. Um, thank you. Yeah. So, so that's where, it, you know, that's where I started to head. So I, I sold 106 what properties.
1: What year was this?
0: This was um, as I was developing my Boise project. This was 2017, 2018. I, I left the fourplex building company in 2018 and I committed myself to large multifamily because be, through all the research I did, through a few sales I had as a broker, I realized, man, you can get economies of scale, and it's way less risk and and a better place for your money, a better return on your money if you buy a large multifamily. So, large multifamily for me was was the way to go because it's lower risk, non-recourse loans, and it's a better return. So I started doing that. And well,
1: let, um, let me ask you something before we go far. Did sure. you get your real estate license? Because you wanted to just do the, the real estate um, full time, what was your reasoning to get the license?
0: Yeah, it, it was both to do my own deals, but also I'm a, I'm a salesman at heart, and you know I was doing summer sales. I didn't want to fly out to Cincinnati or Philadelphia anymore, or wherever they were going to send me, and and knock doors for for four months. So um, helping people buy and sell homes and buy and sell investment properties was kind of a natural thing for me to jump into and I loved it and I love helping people do that. So that's, that's, that's how I got my license.
1: Okay. Got you. All right. So what type of asset and where is it located? The one that we're going to talk about.
0: Yeah. So this search took me to large multifamily and I've been doing that for the last few years. And, um, this specific deal that I, I wanted to talk about is 282 doors it's a multifamily project or community that was built in the early eighties in Cincinnati. And um, you know, if, if you were to compare numbers between a fourplex or these townhomes, I own four townhomes here in Lehigh, Utah, and I've owned fourplexes and duplexes, the returns are, are higher and the risk is lower. And, and that's what I absolutely love. And, and so when I'm teaching teaching, recession proof real estate investing tips and teaching people and talking in my podcast, that's the ultimate combination, lower risk and, and higher returns. Um, and it's also just less brain damage. You know, when you're when you're dealing with all these individual properties, you're running around trying to manage them, it's so much work. Whereas you can have an on-site property manager and maintenance guy and and you're not the one doing the work. You know, if, if you're a doctor like a lot of my clients are, you're a surgeon or a CPA or or anybody. You have your own career and, and a lot of the times these real estate investors kind of, they burn out. They get frustrated and, and it becomes not worth the time and the effort. I mean, you're a property manager, so obviously people hired you because they didn't want to do it themselves, right? And it's it can be a full-time job.
1: It is. It could be until it's stabilized and then it's very easy, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but yeah,
1: now it's not so easy, right? With the pandemic, there's a <laughs> lot of things going on, but All right.
0: So how did you find this deal? So there's two ways that we focus on finding deals. And, you know, they're the two best for me. There's people that use mailers and use other ways and networking. But the two best ways I've always found deals is cold calling owners, just printing off lists and calling them, asking them if they want to sell, and then calling the brokers. So if there's a really good multifamily broker in Salt Lake, I'm going to call him and ask him what deals he has coming up. So we happened to call this broker in Cincinnati the day he listed this project or the day before, day after. And he just happened to have this great deal for us. And there was a couple other interested parties. And and um, so so the good news is you can still find good deals through brokers. It, it does happen. Uh, most of the time you can't, but there are still some good deals to be had in this, in this crazy, uh, you know, market that we've had uh going up for the last 10 years
1: absolutely all right so what was the listing price
0: um so i'm trying to remember if he actually listed it i'm gonna pull up the om because i so a lot of these bigger deals they actually won't list it
1: so they will actually say
0: no, there actually won't be a listing price, and they'll say because they want the prices, the the bids to come in as high as possible. Right. Um, so let me pull it up really quick, and I'll I can't even remember if you even listed it. So the the other Cincinnati deal, and this is a question I, I ask all the time to brokers: is they won't they won't include a price, and you'll say, okay, well. Mr. Broker, come on, like, give me some help. What do you think it's going to sell for? And of course they're saying, well, it's going to sell for 30 million. So that tells me if he's really accurate and he's good at marketing, maybe it will sell for 30 or maybe 31 or 32 million. Um, but maybe if he's not doing a good job marketing or it's not as good as a property as he's saying it is, maybe it'll go for 28, you know, 29, 27 million.
1: Right. But you are buying in an area where you are not located, right? So you don't see the property until, you know, you are doing the due diligence or maybe you go before. um... Yeah.
0: um, (laughs) We, so we'll call the property manager. We'll go on Google maps and do the street view. So we'll virtually walk through the property. We'll secret shop it. And so I'll pretend like I'm a renter and I'll call the property manager and I'll say, send me photos, or maybe they have photos online. So, Actually with te- technology today, you can do a ton of research. and so um, the purchase price on this one's 15.15 million and I don't see a listing price. I don't remember if he actually listed it at a certain price or not. Um, most of the time on these bigger deals, there's no listing price.
1: All right, so how did you negotiate it? I'm assuming that you know you gave them your first offer and there was a little bit of a back and forth.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually what's cool about this deal is um, there was a prepayment penalty for the mortgage. And so one reason we actually got a little bit lower price than what the the seller was originally wanting is we were okay. Assuming the loan, the loan, the interest rate on the loans a little bit higher than we wanted, but it saved us money on, on the purchase price, you know, saved us um, a, a good chunk of change. Um, so that was part of the negotiations is, Hey, we'll, we'll pay a little bit less but we'll assume your loan, Mr. Seller, so that you don't have to pay that prepayment penalty, which was over a million dollars to the bank.
1: Oh wow, that is good. And the other people interested were not willing to do that, I'm assuming.
0: I guess not, yeah. They didn't tell us, but we won the bid.
1: (laughs) Awesome, all right. So how did you fund it and finance this deal?
0: So we're actually still waiting to close, believe it or not. So we were ready, we had our money ready to go um, in March. Coronavirus hit. And as you know, uh interest rates dropped. So tip a typical month for Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac is about five billion dollars in loans. That's how much they process. When the interest rates dropped, they got hit with 20 billion. And naturally we got delayed. And then the shutdown happened and everyone got sent home. So now we're we were supposed to close the at the latest. Um I think it was the first or second week in April. So now it's May and we're still not closed. And Freddie Mac is saying, Hey, let's, that's who the loan is with. That's who we're assuming the loan with. They said, Hey, let's look at May's rents. Let's see how that goes. And we're going to delay you again. And we're just, there's so many delays going on. But aside from that, you know, we're putting a 30% down and we have a six month contingency fund, which we have for all of our deals. So, we won't do as many deals as a lot of people. There's there's investors, syndicators, fund managers out there that are buying two or three properties a month, or even one property a month is a lot. We typically look at 150 deals until we actually buy one. And the reason for that is is again my my recession proof you know um, podcast and and the whole idea behind that is we don't need to buy a bunch of properties. We need to buy really good properties where we can afford to have the occupancy drop. You know, for coronavirus, um, a lot of people aren't able to pay rent. And we we haven't seen May's numbers yet, but that may be below 90%. And that's going to hurt a lot of people. So part of how we buy properties is we have to be able to fund a six-month contingency budget. Basically if the rents don't come in, can we still pay all of the expenses? So that's what we do. It's a four to six month uh, lump sum of money that goes in a bank account so that we can pay the expenses for up to six months. And so far we haven't ever had to dip into that on any of our properties, but it's there. And then we also add a good chunk of change to that, that money every month to repair the property in case something happens. We had a tornado destroy one of our our properties uh, last year. We had a windstorm blow the roof off of our Dallas property. And until insurance could, you know, send us the money, we had to fight insurance on those deals. We had that contingency fund. So we buy these things very conservatively, putting 30% plus down um, using Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac loans, or maybe a local bank or or whoever. And, we just, we raise the money through our investors. This, these are, uh, you know, only accredited investors allowed in, in these deals. And our goal is just to be so conservative that that no matter what happens, even it could get worse than 2008, our deals will still make money. And, and we do what's called a stress test. So I don't know. Have have you talked about stress testing much on the podcast?
1: Uh, no. So tell tell people about it. I know what it is, but I, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's really important if you're looking at a deal or a fund or a syndication and and you ask that fund manager or that syndication operator what the stress test is and they they don't have an answer for you, I I would say run. Um, (laughs) Because what it says is, okay, what is the worst case scenario? Say 2008, we know that the average worst economic occupancy dropped to about 85%. And it didn't really get much worse than that. So that's a combination of rents dropping and physical occupancy dropping. So what, okay, let's say we have another 2008 and we dropped to 15% or dropped to 85% economic occupancy. What does it look like? What does our deal look like? Well, we don't want to be sweating. We want to be able to sleep at night. We want our investors to be able to sleep at night. You, there's a lot of noise and talk going on around them right now about certain fund managers, not paying their investors for the next few months. I don't want to name names, but there's people that are really angry and upset and worried right now. That's what we want to avoid. So when we buy a deal, our stress test is 25%. If our economic, if our money coming in drops by 25%, does the deal still pay for itself before dipping into that six-month contingency fund? The answer in all of our deals are yes. And that's why we buy less deals because there, there's just not a lot of deals that can do that. But guess what? We sleep really well at night. We sleep really well. And so when coronavirus hit, our investors are emailing, calling us, panicking. Are you still gonna buy the Cincinnati deal? And we're like, yeah, because it's stress tests at 33%. So we could have the money coming in the gross income dropped by 33% and it's still breaking even. We still don't have to dip into that contingency fund. And I would say a lot of fund managers and syndicators are closer to the 10% on their stress test because they want to do a deal. They yeah. want to make money. They they want to buy a deal and and take that investor's money and, and invest it and, and make their money. And we are, much more long-term minded and we want to make sure they pass these stress tests at at least 25 percent. and everyone sleeps well at night and warren buffett's number one rule is don't lose money i've never lost money and i don't intend to ever lose money on a real estate deal It's, it's just there's no reason to there's no reason to take unnecessary risks
1: absolutely so um on this uh, deal, what is your exit strategy? What are, once you close, hope, hopefully soon, what is the plan? How long are you going to hold it?
0: Great question. We'll hold it a, until we make an amazing return for our investors. So there, there are deals that we may sell in a year. That's very rare. But in an upmarket, you could you know, put some work into it, do it, put a nice facelift on it, and you could sell it for an amazing, amazing profit. But our business plan for every property that we buy is 10 years. So goal number one is to buy it and do a cost segregation study, which means we accelerate the depreciation and we give our investors, our limited partners, a huge tax savings in year one. At the same time, we're going to um, basically remodel the units. The interior and exterior of that complex is going to get a facelift. And we're going to raise rents. the tenants are happy because usually we buy properties that don't look that great, so they don't mind paying extra rent, some of them do, but most of them are are very happy to have updated granite countertops and and a pool that actually works the Dallas property we bought that they hadn't had the pool open in two years. Um, the Cincinnati deal that we're buying i mean there's there's tons of issues it just doesn't look great on the exterior there's walkways that were crumbling and Um, we're going to make it look a lot nicer. So, in the first year, we're going to raise rents, probably the first 18 months. And then after about uh, three years, we're going to refinance the property or do what's called a supplementary loan. And basically, it's a cash out refi. So, if we've done all this work to the property, plus we've raised rents and we bought it for 15 million, it's probably worth 20 million after three years. We've raised rents. We've increased the value, the cap rate. Anyways, so it's worth twenty million. We're gonna pull out about fifty percent of the down payment, and give it back to our limited partners. That reduces their risk, but it also allows them to compound their investment. So their part, their their percentage ownership in the deal does not change. Their cash flow will go down because if they put a hundred thousand in and and we give them 50,000 back, we're only gonna give them their 8% return on 50,000, but their equity is still growing by their same original percentage. Huh. But when we sell the deal, they still get a great paycheck and they can reinvest that money. So, so anyways, at year three, we do that cash out refi, we give you back your 50,000 bucks or 50% of whatever you, you invested, and then hopefully you reinvest with us again in another deal.
1: Right. And so that's that money, right? To, to put money in a different investment.
0: Yeah. And that's a tax-free event. That's a non-taxable event because it's not a sale. It's a cash out refi. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to pay taxes on that money. You go and reinvest it and you compound your money every three years instead of having your money tied up. Because if you gain equity on a property, like I have all these people that say, oh, well, I've, I've made a hundred thousand on my house or my property. Well, yeah, but you're not doing anything with it. It's just sitting there. you actually haven't made any money. You haven't realized a gain and it's not earning you anything. So you might as well pull the money out and go put it in another safe, conservative investment that's going to make a lot of money. So our goal is to have at least a 15% yearly return on your money. And we're usually closer to 20% with tax savings, which sounds crazy. It's way better than the stock market, but if you look at the numbers, that's a legitimate return. And um, we want you to do that every three years. And And in 10 years, we'll sell the property and do a 1031 exchange and take that money. Unless you want to pull the money out and, you know, go buy yourself a car or something, we encourage you not to do that. Um, We'll take that money and go buy another deal and and start over.
1: All right. So you were talking about increasing rents. Uh, Mm -hmm. What do you foresee in the next, you know, after the pandemic happened? What do you see? Because I used to you know i think the way that i was underwriting properties before the pandemic is a different way than when i'm underwriting right now because you know six months ago you could kind of foresee an increase in rents right because the trend was that it was going up right but now right. what are you seeing
0: well so here's the thing it all depends on jobs um the the cool thing about cincinnati is amazon just announced they're hiring another hundred thousand employees And Amazon is currently building a $1.5 billion air hub, the Cincinnati airport, 40, 40 Amazon employees already live at our complex. Oh wow. So we also have three hospitals within 15 minutes of that complex and the other complex that we're buying soon. So it really always, always depends on jobs and that's why you don't buy in a one horse town or that's why you don't buy in a city who like, let's say, Let's say Memphis. You know, Memphis is solely reliant on FedEx. Not solely, but that's a huge part of their economy. If FedEx leaves Memphis, you're going to be in trouble. You know, so Boise back in back in the last recession, they had mostly you know BSU the the college, and then they had construction, and, and that's really all they had, and they got crushed. Or Vegas, you know, they have all in the entertainment jobs and. Orlando, Orlando. Yeah. Yeah. Orlando's getting more diverse though. They're, they're doing much better now than, than just entertainment and and stuff. So, so Cincinnati, Cleveland's making the cotton swabs and stuff for the, uh, for all the COVID tests. Atlanta has Delta, but they also have a huge diverse economy. Salt Lake city is very diverse. So there's going to be places that struggle, I think, and I think rents will get stagnant. But if you also think about it, there are people that have been wanting to buy homes And we already had a hugely pent up demand, Utah. We we've had about a 50,000 housing unit housing shortage for the last five or six years. We can't make up any ground on it. Now it's just worse because we've had a shutdown. So I think there's still a lot of pent up demand and I think rents may slow down, but I think they're going to continue to rise after this all kind of goes away because there's a lot of demand and there's a lot of jobs that are still going to be in place. And and unless you know we lose a huge amount of jobs permanently um i think we're going to be just fine and and rents are going to go up but you're right You, you have to look at deals a little bit differently so this other cincinnati deal we were going to put under contract the 140 doors we told the seller hey we just have to pause until the shutdown's over because if we have a huge amount of people lose jobs and they don't get other jobs it's a different deal you know we're gonna have to pay a different price or underwrite it differently and so you're right. You know, it, there's a lot of unknown factors right now, and and that's why I think I told you before the call, or maybe I was telling someone else, we had about forty six million dollars in pending transactions entering the COVID shutdown, and we've pushed paused on all of them except for the Cincinnati deal, uh, mostly because lenders are not allowing us to close. They're Freddie Mac just taking their sweet time, and they're delaying us, and and basically causing the deals to not be able to go through. We also don't know where jobs are at, so we're pushing pause, but the pause button, and looking at our underwriting and making sure we're conservative enough, um, so that if we don't get massive rent bumps, we're fine. You know, in this Cincinnati deal, if we don't get the $150 rent bumps that we're planning on, it's still a really good property to own.
1: So, what uh, changes are you doing? Um, for this property that you're already under contract that because of this situation, because maybe you don't want to, you know, invest so much money in renovation at the beginning that you planned, or did you make any changes because of this situation?
0: We're watching and and looking. Um, so far, rent was over 90% collected in, in April. Um, we're going to be close to that in, in May as well. So because Cincinnati is pretty diverse, we're going to be okay. Um, so we're watching, I, I think we still need more data before we decide the the nice thing is this is a project that's already existing and we can't just kick everyone out and start renovations. So we're going to start renovations as soon as we close, but that's a good point. We may start a little bit slower. We may just do a few a month and feel the market out and, and see, maybe we only get $75 rent bumps and, and we slow it down and, and we wait or, I don't know. So, so we'll see. As soon as the shutdown's over and, and we have some more data, we'll have a little bit better idea.
1: Expert tips. Awesome. All right. Now is the part of the show when, where you're going to give me three expert tips. And the topic that you're going to give it to me is how to become a recession proof investor.
0: Awesome. Um, tip number one. I would say, is learn from others mistakes. Don't make your own. It's hard to do, because there's so much you need to learn and understand. So I gave you a, a, a tip at the beginning, before we started recording to partner with somebody that's already established, find them a deal. And this is what I've always done in my entire life. I've said, okay, who already knows how to do this? I'm going to go work with them. Maybe I'll make less money at the start, but they've already made mistakes, they've already learned, and, and I wanna skip some of those mistakes at the beginning of, of whatever I'm doing. Um, it's kinda like YouTube. You can watch YouTube and watch you know, people make mistakes, learn how to do stuff, and, and you can avoid a lot of your own. So that's why I work with these other partners. One of my partners, Michael Young, he's twice my age, He's has hundreds of doors. He has millions of dollars in the bank and he's a partner with me because I'm, I'm younger. I am hungry and, and I know how to do this. And he's basically up here saying, yep, your business plan is solid. You're good. Don't make this mistake. Don't make this mistake. I partner with Rod and Robert on a few deals to do the same thing. They've got millions and millions of transactions under their belts and they say, let's not do this. Let's do this. Um, because, Investor money is like blood money. You you can't lose people's money. It's never okay to lose people's money. It's never okay to lose your own money. So learn from people that have done it, learn from people that have made other mistakes and just, you know, you can avoid a lot of heartbreak and a lot of stress that way. Um,
1: All right. So tip number two,
0: tip number two, I would say once you're learning from a great mentor, um, you have to understand the numbers. Don't be the person that says, you know, teach me and, and tell me what you're doing and, and, and doesn't actually go out and do it on your own and really, really understand. So I get people sending me deals all the time. And I, it's great. I love it when people send me deals and I love when they want to know it's a good deal but there's so many free resources. So, so really understand the numbers of real estate, of the transaction, understand what a cash on cash return is, understand what a, a solid rent upside is, understand how to do the research and get nerdy. I, I mean, I joke a lot, my, my business partners are nerds. I'm a nerd. We look at spreadsheets a ton and, and those are the people that make money. Warren Buffett is one of the biggest nerds in, in the world as a kid, he was cataloging, cataloging license plate numbers for fun. You know, he, anyway, so, so the best investors really, really understand the numbers and they, and that brings me to my, my third tip, which is trust, but verify, find someone you can trust, but never give them a hundred percent trust. I have this good friend, Grace Sang. she's a realtor in California. She's invested with me a ton. And She never trusts me enough to not do the research. She trusts me and we're good friends, but she always, always questions my numbers. She always looks for mistakes. My business partner, Lyndon, he'll analyze a deal and I trust that it's a good deal, but I will comb through his numbers and his analysis, his underwriting, looking for mistakes, looking for errors because, you know, there's just, again, there's no reason to lose money. So trust, but verify if someone says they're good at what they do, verify with their old business partners. You know, there's a lot of dishonest people out there. So understand the numbers and then trust, but verifies would be my number three.
1: Absolutely. That there is uh, you know, we're all humans. We can make mistakes too. And if somebody's looking at the numbers, different eyes, new, you know, fresh eyes, they are going to, if they find something, then it's to the benefit of everybody.
0: Yep. And if you've got a partner or someone you're working with that gets frustrated with you trying to, to uh, verify, that's probably the wrong person to work with because I love it when people point out mistakes because I'm human and I try not to make them, but you know, it, it's, it's always good to, to verify. So I've had a lot of partners or investors in the past that'll get very frustrated with someone checking their numbers. And to me, that's a huge red flag.
1: Absolutely. All right, Sam, where can people find you? Uh, Give us your social media contacts.
0: Yeah. So Facebook, I'm on more than anything, I would say, you know, hanging out with my two and a half year old and my six and a half year old and my wife, we go fishing. And so I'm pretty easy. If you just look up Sam Newell, Um, I've got pictures of me and my kids all over Facebook. My, My business Facebook is Sam Newell Real Estate. And then I have an Instagram and a podcast. So my Instagram is also Sam Newell Real Estate. And then my podcast is Recession Proof Real Estate Investing. And um, the goal there is just to educate people just like you are. And um, you can find my my contact info on LinkedIn and and Facebook and, and shoot me an email or a text and love to talk to anyone that has a deal or wants to learn more.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for adding so much value. I think people are going to learn a ton with this episode. There's so much um, information. And if you heard any uh, terms that you don't understand, you can go to my website, Tali Investments, and you can download for free. Uh, It's a commercial real estate estate vocabulary um, that you can get for free. And if you like the video and you learn a ton, please subscribe to the podcast or you can also go to YouTube and subscribe on on YouTube. Uh, Thank you so much. And this was wonderful. Thank you, Sam.
0: Awesome. Thank you this was deal closers with annette tali brought to you by tali investments we hope that you enjoyed this episode our goal is to provide amazing value on your real estate journey connect online at www.taliinvestments.com where you can find this episode and more did you like this episode subscribe like and share